Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. Most people, when they think of philosophy, associate it with a certain amount of irrelevance, conjuring up images of people sitting around in deep and earnest discussion, diligently trying to get to the bottom of age-old dilemmas, most of which are fundamentally intractable. But for me, one of the most significant and most underrated aspects of philosophy is its power to swiftly convince you how something you thought was obviously true is actually anything but. A good example of what I'm talking about here is provided by Tufts University philosopher Brian Epstein, who rapidly convinces us that our knee-jerk convictions of what makes up our day-to-day social world, from insurance policies to the Supreme Court, are actually dead wrong. Which explains, unsurprisingly, why so many of our models and simulations, from political corruption to economic forecasting, are woefully inaccurate. And it's hard to get a whole lot more relevant than that. So I've been led to believe from your comments that you, you weren't necessarily motivated to investigate philosophical questions in the social sciences from a very young age. When you were three, this was not something that you were, you were, you were keen to do. So tell me how well, that all, all began. Yeah, so I uh, originally did start in physics and in math. I was really interested in exploring fundamental questions, uh, as I think a lot of uh, young people are. Right. And uh, when I got to college, I started to do a lot of physics, but found myself really fascinated by philosophy. I was an undergrad at Princeton. Uh, and the philosophy department there was great. Uh, and in particular, they were, uh, they were specialists in philosophy of language. Also, so, it, was philosophy of, it wasn't philosophy of science, per se, that, in, that drew you in. It was more philosophy of language. You know, there was a fair amount of philosophy of science. I think my first philosophy class actually was a philosophy of physics class. And so I was interested in philosophy of physics and philosophy of mathematics. But very quickly there, it became clear that philosophy of language was at the center, at least of how they conceived of what was important in philosophy. So even the people who were doing philosophy of science drew tremendously on philosophy of language. So it was all these analytical guys. I exactly, guess. Okay. exactly. And largely it was influenced by Saul Kripke, uh, who, uh, who was at Princeton, although he wasn't really much of a presence when I was there. Right. And by David Lewis, uh, who, was, who turned out to be my senior thesis advisor. Oh, cool. so, um, so I started out doing, doing mostly philosophy of language there and then decided, thought that I really would become a philosopher of language, so positioned myself in language and logic and that sort of thing. Right. So most of the philosophy work that I did was, was in language, and I still, I think, am very influenced by some of the, some of the innovations, particularly of Kripke. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, there was, there's been a, a dramatic transformation, really, over the course of the 20th century, in how we think about language and how we think about the mind. And this isn't just something that took place in analytic philosophy, but a lot of it was also influenced by people like Heidegger and people working on the engagement of humans with the world. 
there used to be, this is a, a, a well-known story, I think, at this point. Sure. But I think that uh, historically, people really thought of the mind and the language faculty as something that was entirely inside the head. And so when, you were, when we were trying to understand ourselves and understand language and even understand our models of the world, the way to do it in the traditional way was just to look at our own heads and right. look at the kinds of knowledge that we receive from the world and how we process it. So right. it was all what's, what's called internalistic. So this isolated notion of these, um, I, I want to get obviously to this anthropocentric problem later on, right. but this idea of these individuals who can, there's the world out there and they're processing it internally, these individuals, these little units that are, that are walking around. Exactly, exactly. So, so, and this is built very deeply into a lot of the history of philosophy, where we're constructing representations of the world. Uh, Richard Rorty has talked about this, the idea that uh, philosophers had thought of the mind as a kind of mirror of nature. We represent the external world, and so to understand our, our thoughts and our content, we have to think about our representations. And, the, the, and, and not only that, but think about those representations as things that are only inside of our minds. And this is something that a number of people have struggled against really over the course of the 20th century. Kripke is one brick in that wall, right. uh, but there's a lot of people who are, who are doing the same kind of thing, who are trying to emphasize the fact that we're practical creatures and that we engage with the world. And you can't think of language as something that's, that's merely a matter of our mental representations, but you have to think of it in terms of acts and practices. Right? So, uh, so there were changes in how people thought about language. There were changes in how people thought about the mind. There were changes in how people thought about kind of the way that we represent the world and even the nature of a representation. Right. So this question of what is out there, um, and obviously we're going to get to it, but it seems to me this question of what are these social objects and what is actually out there, the ontology of the social world, you entered through this philosophy of language stream, as it were. Is that That's fair? Right. That it is. Uh, and interestingly, I've moved almost completely away from thinking about language at the center of things. Right. I think also that's characteristic of a lot of what's gone on in contemporary analytic philosophy. I think that in the, when, I w when I was in school, I was kind of at the tail end of language being at the center of the philosophical world. And uh, in recent years, there have been other fields that have kind of come to the fore, uh, especially metaphysics that is the study of the nature of the world in general. That's really become a much more independent and important discipline in some ways. And largely that's because people who were studying language then started to realize that language is not something that's entirely in our heads, but involves our engagement with the external world. Right. So if I use, the, the classic example is when people talk about water. If I have a thought about water, then am I thinking about, is the content of my thought built out of my representations of water? Or is the content of my thought the stuff in the world? It sounds strange to think that the things in the world are part of our mental contents, but this is where people started to go in, in, in thinking about, uh, about language. Right. So once you make that move, then all of a sudden, when you're starting to think about your linguistic content, you're not thinking about language anymore. You're thinking about the world. Right. You're thinking about the reference of language. Right. right. So, well, it's pretty hard to have a thought about water 
if there had never had been water. Well, exactly, <laughs> exactly, right, right. Um, but right, so so, but l quite literally, the external world becomes a part of right. linguistic content right. in contemporary theorizing. So, so you enter through this linguistic stream. Mm -hmm. So you start off in physics and math, and you're drifting, as some of my friends might say, to the dark side. But you're, <laughs> exactly. I guess the real dark side is Wall Street. So you're, yeah. you're not drifting there. You're drifting. You're drifting towards philosophy of language. You're looking at metaphysics and and, and so forth. Yep. You're at Princeton as an undergraduate. Mm -hmm. You do your senior thesis at Princeton, yep. and then you decide that you want to presumably continue in, in a philosophical direction. So tell me, tell me yep. more about that. So then I went to Oxford for a couple of years, um, and there I was largely on my own. Partly, I, what I, what I, oh, there was one more thing that I wanted to say about, about Princeton, which was that there was, another, there was one class I took that turned out to be enormously influential, kind of out of left field. Um, and that was a class on the Frankfurt School. So I was really reading mostly Adorno and Horkheimer and, uh, and a little bit of Lukács, uh, which actually was in some ways the most influential. So these are the kind of heavy post-Marxist thinkers right. where they're, they're mostly interested in, in the critique of contemporary capitalism and they're, uh, they're, they're unhappy with the whole modern world in a lot of ways. Uh, and maybe they're justified, I don't know. But, but the thing that was really interesting to me about that class was the idea of reification, which is something that uh, Lukács talks about and, and these other guys talk about quite a bit. And that's really the idea of how we take socially constructed things and then treat them as if they're real uh, and make them real. Uh, so I, I became very interested in social construction and how we build the world. Uh, now, at the time, I was still very much thinking about the linguistic construction of the world, so it took a number of years to kind of get away from thinking about language at the center of all of this. Right. But uh, reification in and of itself was something that you were uh, interested in or excited by or triggered by, I guess. Yeah, yeah, it really, it really kind of struck a spark. Uh, and uh, so it took a long time. There was a lot of exploration to try to understand the philosophical tradition, where this was coming from, what people were doing with it, how to address it. Uh, and, and so there was a lot of kind of philosophical wandering. Uh, when I, so when I was at, at Oxford, I decided that I wanted to do things that were completely different from anything that I had done. So I didn't do any language or logic or any of that stuff. Right. I worked on Kant. I did some political philosophy. That's what I was going to um, ask. So what, what, did, did, you, did you have an interest? Um, I understand pairing away from language and logic and so forth, but were you thinking more about applying this through political systems? Or you mentioned post-Marxism. I'm not even sure how yeah. post it was, but whatever. How <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah, maybe it wasn't post. Uh, but but this, this idea of thinking about this within a more political context, within a socio-political context, was that, were those your motivations? Or? Not really. Okay. Not really. The, I, I've really been largely motivated by theoretical considerations. Okay. Uh, in, in some ways, uh, entirely theoretical, just wanting to know how the world is built and what the nature of the world is. So in some ways, the same kinds of motivations that might interest, yeah, might interest you in physics. Right. Strictly wanting to know how things work. On the other hand, I also did take, do a stint in the business world for a little while right, after right, I got right, out I read, of... I read about that. So was this after Oxford? Then? Yeah, it was after Oxford. Okay, yeah, so you did yeah. this. You did this master's, and you're, you're you've pared away philosophy. Yeah. You're still into the social world and reification, and you're exploring different ways of how that's manifesting itself, maybe yeah. or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And then you, you then you start working. Then you become associated with 
Silicon Valley startups? Or well, whatever. there was, a, was, startups, that was also a management consulting, consulting or what? Yeah, I did management consulting for a little while. Okay. Um, and then after a couple of years, I thought it was really interesting, actually. That's but what I was going to ask. So was this, was this personally motivated or was this because I know a lot of people that do this because they're trying to put food on the table and that's fine and they think I don't want to be an academic and so they do all that. Was this, this is a world I really want to explore or was this more, yeah, okay, I'll try doing this or a little of both or, or, or what? I think it was more I'll try doing this. I think there was a certain amount of, uh, of recognition that academia doesn't pay and sure. you got to put food on the table. And, sure. But that wasn't really a huge worry. I figured I'd be all right, whatever happened. And so uh, I, I had, part of it really was that I think that there's a certain amount of, of luck involved and, and, and chance. Uh, and I, I happened to know a ton of people at Oxford who were going into management consulting. That was kind of the thing to do. And every smart person I knew was doing it. And I thought, well, may as well interview and see what it's like. Right. And, uh, and, I, and I also knew that I wanted to be out of academia for at least a little while. I wasn't sure if I was going to get back, but I thought there was a reasonable chance. But I also had found uh, Oxford, frankly, a little bit isolating. And Oxford? Isolating? Hard to I know. <laughs> I know. It's a shock. Um, it, was a, it was a funny situation there. Um, so were you in so, London then? Did you go into London to do this? Or did you go back to the States? Or, or? I was in Boston. You were in Boston? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, right so it's we weird. Right at the moment. Exactly. <laughs> it was kind of a, it's been a funny circle. I never thought I'd end up back in Boston after that again, after leaving there. So after a couple of years of doing that, where I really learned a lot, and the, the firm that I, I worked for also was, in the scheme of business, a very intellectual firm. It was one that was started by a Harvard Business School professor named Michael Porter, who wrote all these oh, books yeah, yeah, on yeah, competitive yeah. strategy sure. and that kind of sure. stuff. He's a real big um, shot, that guy. Yeah, yeah. It, it was actually a great experience. Um, but I also found that the intellectual frameworks really amazingly thin in some ways. It's just amazing how much, how, how widely applied these things were and how, um, how kind of simplified things were. It was really, in some ways, my first exposure to real social science. And I know it seems strange to think about business as social science, but that's really what, what we were doing. What we were trying to do was to understand corporations and to, uh, to see if we could synthesize them, um, really understand in, in terms of certain kinds of intellectual frameworks what was going on internally, yeah. what was going on in the competitive environment, and then what was going on in the marketplace as a whole. But that's how you justify yourself, presumably, as value-add, right? I mean, that's why companies will come to you, because you can say, we can synthesize and understand and give you this added perspective. That's, that's the whole mantra. Yeah, exactly. Presumably. Exactly. And one of the things that, we, that I did, there was one project that I thought was incredibly illuminating to me, which was that we did, I did a, a macro trend study uh, for a mutual fund company in Japan. So it was an American mutual fund company that had... Uh, had some mutual funds that they were investing in Japan, and they wanted to know what was going to be happening in, happening in the Japanese market. So this was in the early 90s, mm. and Japan, although the bubble had started to burst in Japan, it still was really at the center of the global economy. And so we went in and tried to predict what was going to happen in the, in the Japanese marketplace. Mm. And we, we came up with maybe 10 predictions. Every one of them was completely wrong. Wow. Like complete, I was amazed. I mean, we, we knew, of course, that the Japanese population was aging. 
that was something that we didn't get wrong. <laughs> but then, of course, the predictions based on that were completely wrong. Everything that we did was wrong. And just the, the difficulty of solving, of solving social problems, of understanding the social world, of doing any kind of predictive work was just, just kind of slapped me in the face there. It was and, really interesting. And, and you probably uh, had enough opportunities to associate yourself with other colleagues and so forth to realize this wasn't an overwhelmingly singular event, that people were making predictions in all sorts of different projects and problems that were also wrong. It oh, absolutely. Just, it wasn't absolutely. just your zero one. Right, 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 right. <laughs> because the next, the next project that I did was a technology project, and that was on behalf of a big telecommunications firm, and we were trying to predict the impact of the internet on telecommunications in... 1994, 93, and whenever it came out, 94. So we, we were thinking about it right at the beginning. We were very aware of what the internet was doing. And there too, uh, interestingly, the, our predictions were wrong again. But in some ways, we thought that the, um, that the repercussions for the market would be quicker than they were. So one of the things that... that, that I mean, I think this is actually really typical of people who are doing economic predictions and, and predictions in the social sciences. Uh, it's, it's almost a canard of economics that things go on longer than you think, and then they collapse more quickly than you think. And that's exactly what happened in telecommunications. These firms had all these wireline telephones and things that just looked like they were yesterday's technology. They were yesterday's technology, but they took... 20 years to displace, right. and then all of a sudden they were displaced all at once. Right. And that's something that's very hard to, hard to kind of wrap an intellectual framework around. So, so these, um, if I can summarize from what you're telling me, there's this sense of what is the social world or aspects of the social world, what is constructed, what's really out there, taking your, this is my bias maybe, but taking your physics toolkit or predilections to, to, to sense, start yeah. applying them to the to the social world or having that framework to look at the social world in, right. then you actually go out in the real social world and you're struck by how, how much misunderstanding or lack of understanding there really is and how difficult it is to actually constructively build theories that work. Right, right, <laughs> right, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so this motivates you then maybe to go back this and perhaps other things motivate you to go back and say, well, I'm going to study this sort of thing more seriously and do a PhD. Is that kind of the way it worked or was it different? Um, you know, I think that the story was not quite, in retrospect, that makes sense. Right. At the time, <laughs> it was not nearly so clear to me. I just knew I liked uh, I liked philosophy. I thought the problems that we were solving or working on were really important. Right. And, and being zero out of ten, that can be kind of deflating. Well, exactly. Right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So then I, I, I went back, but I actually figured that I would probably kind of return to my roots and do more philosophy of language. And so oh. did a tremendous amount of, of language when I, was, uh, when I was first working on my PhD on the coursework and, and that sort of thing. I really thought of myself largely as a philosopher of language. Mm. And, uh, and only over time did it, be, did it all kind of start to come together. Did it start to become clear to me that I was really not so interested in language, but because of some of the explorations I had done, that the work that I was doing was really more metaphysics, was really understanding the nature of the world. And that I also had found that for certain reasons, some of the linguistic problems that I thought were most perplexing had to do with the social world. There's something about um, the, one of the core parts of, of 
philosophy of language, the part of philosophy of language I was talking about is the theory of reference. That is how it is that we attach words to things in the world. Right. How we name people, it seems like something that's very simple, um, but there's a lot of controversy about that. Uh, and, uh, and then also how we name natural kinds in the world. So how we name things like electrons or water or gold or things that are independent of us. And there's been a tremendous amount of work over the last 20 or 30 years on that kind of problem. What there's been less work on is that it's also very easy for us to attach words to non-natural things in the world, like to glass or to plastic, right? And, uh, or to curtains or to buildings or to economies or to, to things that, that we don't necessarily understand any better than the ancients understood the nature of water or gold. We don't really understand what these things are, and we talk about them very easily. And so what was needed was a theory of reference to the social world. And this was something that nobody had been thinking about. Mm -hmm. so, so that was the problem that I started to really pay attention to in my dissertation work, was how language worked in the social world. And then over time, it just became clearer and clearer that it had a lot less to do with language. Right. And really what I was interested in was the metaphysics of the social world. Right. So that's kind of how the whole, sure. um, how the whole thing migrated. Uh, in fact, in my, in my dissertation defense, one of the members of my committee uh, was a, is a philosopher of language and said to me, uh, oh, you know. Where's, where's the philosophy of language? No, no, no. He said the opposite. I said, I said something in my, in my talk about, oh, well, this is really a dissertation in metaphysics. Uh, and he was like, no, 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 this is a dissertation in language. And we had a little fight about it. He, was, he thought it was language. I thought it was metaphysics. It's really the same thing. Well, I guess these philosophers of language, they, only, they look at everything through a philosophy of language prism, perhaps. So maybe it could be. Could be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, I mentioned to you uh, a little while ago that um, I was watching your TED talk, and it's always difficult to, uh, to talk about things in a, to, a, to a broad audience, especially if you're a metaphysician, as it were. Um, but I thought that one of the things that, uh, that you framed very well was this contrast between the natural sciences and the social sciences. We talked a little bit about that, and now it makes more sense to me, given my understanding of, of your, your earlier interests and so forth. But in particular, um, to start very basically, this distinction between what something is mm -hmm. and how it works. Yep. And so this notion of what's actually out there and then some mechanistic explanation for that. And of course, there's a link between that. If you're a physicist, um, you, it's one thing to get an understanding of whether or not the world is made of atoms, and that will hopefully help you understand how those atoms will interact and actually produce various effects and so forth and so on. Right. Um, and you make a point that um, that there's an if you actually just look at the papers that there's a tremendous um, asymmetry because in in the, in the natural sciences people are still investigating well what's actually out there and then they're looking for mechanisms and so if you just look at the papers I think you 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 compared nature to some economics the American Economic Review that's right. Um, and so there's, there's, a, there's some sense of a balance. There's more mechanistic understanding or more mechanistic attempts at understanding in the natural world, but it's, I don't know, 75, 25 or something like that. Um, whereas in the social sciences, it's all this mechanistic stuff without an appreciation for, um, um, 
an understanding of what's actually out there. And of course, um, the, the danger is that that's fine if we have a very, very clear understanding of what's actually out there. But if we really don't have a clear understanding of what's actually out there, then there ain't much point in looking for mechanistic understandings because we don't know what we're having mechanistic understandings of. Is exactly. I sort of see it in the natural sciences as this complementary back and forth. Uh, so if you, I mean, and you can take any field. The one that I used in the TED talk was DNA because it's something that I think most people at least have a picture of what the double helix is. And you can think about, well, the facts about that DNA has this double helix structure, right? That's separate from how that double helix interacts, how, it, uh, how protein transcription works and so on. And so there are some questions about, about just what the structure is. And then there are other questions about, well, how the mechanisms operate and interact with one another uh, in, the, in, in a causal sequence of events. Right. Um, and uh, so I think that, that in science, there really is a back and forth between these things. It's not that you can't do any of the mechanisms without understanding how things work. I mean, think about, say, Mendel's work in, in hybridizing peas, right. right? You can do some good stuff in genetics, even if you have absolutely no idea what a gene is. Right, or you right? don't know what or, DNA hasn't been discovered yet or any of that stuff. Exactly. Yeah. So, and, and the same is true in the social sciences. People who are doing macroeconomics, for instance, you can, you can find statistical relationships between unemployment and inflation and interest rates and all these things and actually come up with some nice high-level hypotheses about how they interact with one another. Right. You so, might come up with effective models. But at there's the very a real, least, you can find correlations. Anyway. Exactly. But there's, and, and you might even find causes at, at the macro level. Yeah. Um, but there still is going to be a limit to how much advancement you can make. And so what you end up doing then is saying, well, what I want to do is model the parts, model the building blocks, and figure out how the macro stuff works based on the interactions of the building blocks. And that's what people try to do in the social sciences. But they have a really naive understanding of how the big things are built out of the little things. Right. And, they also, um, uh, and they also don't spend a whole lot of time trying to improve that naive understanding. What they do is they basically say, oh, well, the social world is pretty simple. It's people interacting with other people. And so if I'm going to build a model, what I really need to do is to build models of lots of people and think about how they interact. Right. And this is the basis of pretty much all of what you might call micro-level social science. People who are working on uh, things like game theory. Well, they take individuals that interact with other individuals. How do you model a society? You have all these individuals interacting with other individuals. That's what game theory does. They have very sophisticated ways of doing that, where people interact with each other strategically, but even so, they think of that kind of individual level interaction as being all that there is in terms of understanding what's going on at the social level. You use a, a common metaphor, this idea of the Copernican revolution and, and so forth. Um, but I think what perhaps should be emphasized is one of the most dangerous aspects of these pernicious assumptions is that you don't even realize that they're assumptions. Yeah. Um, so the to push the metaphor that you invoked um, the maybe it's not even so much applicable to the Copernican revolution but this idea that um, planets travel in perfect circles is 
held us back in our historical understanding of astronomy for thousands of years. Um, and, and until Kepler came along and realized that these, these things were actually elliptical. And maybe I should wait for that siren to go, although it certainly does um, <laughs> guarantee that we do live in, or we are in an urban environment, understanding the, <laughs> the amorphous backdrop here. Um, you can pick that up, presumably, I'm guessing, right? Yeah, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You can pick it up on on uh, on any mic. Um, so, so one of the most um, uh, let me see where where I left off. But um, so for thousands of years, people had uh, this assumption of circular orbits, but they didn't even realize it was an assumption until right. Kepler came along. It was oh my goodness, uh, we had been assuming that they were circular all along. Right. Um, and, and I think the comparison that, that you're making is that we are operating under the assumption that all of the social world can be explained by individual human behavior yep. and individual people. Yep. And if, if only we had a better understanding of how those individuals would react, then we would be able to construct everything in the social world from these, these building blocks. And so you have these economists who say, okay, well, people should all be rationalized, uh, rational individuals and, and maximize their utility functions. And oh, actually, maybe they're not altogether rational, so we have to have a better understanding of human psychology. And you point out that even if you have an optimal understanding of human psychology, even if you, you have a, a clear understanding of, of, of what's driving people to make individual de decisions, that in and of itself doesn't... Uh, uh, unequivocally lead to a complete understanding of the social world. That's absolutely right. And that's, this is a point that I think people have a really hard time making sense of. They, they, when, if you want to criticize contemporary economics, what I think a lot of people say is, oh yeah, well the problem with contemporary economics is that it assumes that everybody's rational. And we've finally overthrown that assumption. Right? And so now we're going to fix economics. Uh, there's an enormous amount, really the bulk of work that's being done in economics today uh, is to try to uh, incorporate these, these new understandings of where human psychology departs from, from perfect rationality. It's an enormous project. It's an important project. Uh, I, was, I was recently, there was a, uh, uh, a meeting for the ASSA for the American, or for the Allied Social Sciences Associations in Boston just this year that I went to. And uh, so that's where the economics, the big, it's really the big economics conference. And uh, pretty much everybody was talking about irrationality. They were talking about how to, in, how to incorporate in their models the fact that people don't always choose rationally. And uh, it is very important for economics and for other social sciences to get good models of the individual. I, would, I wouldn't deny that for a second. But there is exactly this built-in assumption that if you do that, then you're done. If you do that, then what you've done is you, you, since society, the assumption is since society is entirely built out of individual people interacting with one another, once we improve our models of how people think, how they interact with one another, then our models of society will be, will be perfect, will come out of that. And that's just a faulty assumption if you actually look at the way that the social world is built in a more serious way. And this is, this is the, the, the criticism of this anthropocentrism, uh, if I understand it correctly, this idea of it's just all about people and understanding 
particular people. You're not, maybe you get this, I don't know, but you're not saying the social world has nothing to do with people or you, you, you're not denying the fact that this is a consequence of living in a, in a world filled with people, but you're saying there are other things that have ontological, metaphysical value rather than just individual behavior, individual actions. That's right. A lot of people who are interested in the kind of ontology of the social world will talk about um, what's called emergence. And so what, they, what, what they'll do is they'll say, well, um, what happens in a society, so, so the people who are really trying to get metaphysical about the social world will say, you're absolutely right, the social world isn't people, rather it's an emergent phenomenon out of people interacting with each other. Mm. And this is the title of the book, The Ant Trap. The idea is that a lot of people see the social world as a kind of superorganism or a kind of ant colony. Right, so the ant colony, there's, there's a, a, a biologist at Harvard, E.O. Wilson, who works on, on ants, and he has this book called Socio, he has one book called Sociobiology, another book called The Superorganism, where he really puts this, this picture forward very, very explicitly. He says that if you look at an ant colony, then all the individual ants are acting in fairly simple, mechanistic ways with chemical trails and however ants communicate with one another. Right. But the ant colony as a whole has a logic to it that you can't discern by looking at the individual ants. So you really have to look at the emergent properties of the superorganism, right. right? And by extension, human society is like that as well. We have all these people interacting with one another. And if you really want to understand society as a whole, what you have to do is understand the superorganism that is human society. But again, that picture is built on the very same assumption. It's built on the idea that there's nothing more to human society than people right. and interactions with one another. So they are, the, they are the atoms of society, as it were. And then maybe you have new laws that come up from these atoms. That's but, right. But they're the building blocks. They're the constituent guys. That's exactly right. And so that's analogous to, I guess, meteorology and you know, chaos and all these, uh, all these other kinds of things. That's right. That's but right. what you're saying is there are other things out there. Uh, yeah, that, and it's that, not that there's mysterious stuff. Right. It's not there. People, a lot of people make a, make a distinction they, between two approaches to the nature of the social world. There's individualism, which takes the social world to be people interacting with other people. And then on the other hand, there's holism, which is associated with some mysterious 19th century doctrine that there's some sort of spirit guiding us that's pushing society along on some sort of path right. where individuals are somehow slaves to the social, the logic of society. And those two pictures, it's a false dichotomy. The distinction between individualism and holism. People say, oh, well, if you're not an individualist, you must be a holist. That's just assuming that those are the only two options. Right. The building blocks of society are much more complicated. In a lot of ways, it's similar to the sort of stuff that I was saying earlier about engagement with the external world, right? It's not just us. There's an enormous amount of physical infrastructure in the world. The, the hierarchy of building blocks is much more complicated than simply people interacting with one another, aggregating up. So a, maybe a good way to go forward would be to start talking about a few examples uh -huh. of, so that people can, can understand this. So um, you gave a very illustrative example uh, on the TED Talk. You talk about just looking at your bank balance and then un getting an understanding of what 
the social world actually consists of to get a real understanding of what that means. And, and you start recognizing there are all sorts of institutions, there are all sorts of assumptions, there are all sorts of interactions that actually can't be understood and explained just by collections of people. That's right. Um, and similarly, I think you use a very illustrative example uh, in your book several times about different groups. And you mentioned one, one that uh, I was struck by was the Supreme Court. If you look at the Supreme Court, um, we all have an understanding of what the Supreme Court is, even if we live in countries with different Supreme Courts, doesn't make any difference. But you can't understand what that actually means by looking at the constituent representatives of the Supreme Court at any time. That, that's nice, it's, it's informative, it may give you a sense of where the Supreme Court is going today, but it doesn't give you a deep understanding of what the Supreme Court actually is. That's right. So if you look at the nine people on the Supreme Court, right, the Supreme Court is a lot more than those nine people. There's a way of doing um, a kind of thought experiment in philosophy where you try to understand, well, does this object just consist of these parts? And what you do is you take those parts, you move them to a remote environment, and you see if that object still exists or still behaves in the same way. And it's obvious, if you take those nine people and you move them somewhere where there's not this enormous United States infrastructure, then they're powerless. The power of the Supreme Court, the fact that they're making decisions, even the actions of the Supreme Court, if you try to think about, well, what is it that the Supreme Court is doing? They're striking down a law, they're voting in a certain way. That consists of much, much more than simply those nine people. And the impact that those decisions have on society and, and how that actually works. I mean, it's not just that they're, they're making decisions, but those decisions are, of course, how they're affecting us and how they're affecting other people and how they're maybe affecting future Supreme Court decisions and all the rest of that. Right, right. So there are really two, com two important questions to ask. One of them is, what is the nature of their actions? What are the building blocks of the actions of the Supreme Court? Are those building blocks simply the nine people, or is it much more? And it's clear that it's much more. And then there's another question about the causal effects of those decisions, of those actions they take. Right. And those also involve much more than just influences on people. So this is, the, again, the distinction that you, you make between what, what it is, what's out there, yep. and then how it works, what, exactly. what's the whole exactly. system. And if you're going to understand how it works, the point is that there's a lot of subtle work to do. Obviously, in this conversation, we can't get into that much detail about actually how the social world is built yeah. and what, the, what these complex building blocks are. But the first thing to observe is that at least the building blocks are not as simple as it seems like they, as, as people assume that they are. Right. And so if you're going to try to build models of the Supreme Court or of an economy or of a company, then you have to pay a lot more serious attention to, to understanding the ontology of it. That is how the thing is, is built. Okay. So you've convinced me, Professor Epstein, um, that my naive assumptions about the social world uh, were in fact naive. Uh, and now I have some concrete examples that I can say, okay, now I get what he's talking about now. There is more than just people going on. I have the notion of the Supreme Court or the notion of some economic system or what have you. Um, but I want to get into uh, a few details. You're right, we don't have the opportunity to dig perhaps as deeply as we would like, but I want to talk, uh, I have some understanding of what's wrong 
Mm -hmm. Now I would like to have some sense as to how we might do things a little bit better, more rigorously. So talk a little bit about grounding and anchoring and all the rest of that, some of your ideas for how we can get a deeper, richer, more meaningful understanding of what these uh, social objects really are. Okay, so one thing that I, I also want to point out um, is that there, the observation that uh, that the social world involves engagement with the outside world is something that a lot of different disciplines have noticed. Uh, so, and they, they, they account for it in different ways. In anthropology and sociology in particular, people have started to move to what they call theories of practices. So they think about, uh, instead of thinking about the building blocks of the social world being individual people, they think about the social world as being routines and practices that we have. Um, that is where we, um, for instance, if you think about a dance, right? Well, what is the nature of a dance? A dance is some sort of social thing, right? And what are the building blocks of that? Well, it's not just people, but it is habits that people have, and it is dance floors. And it's, so it's, it's not just an individual, but it's a way or a routine that people have for interacting with their environments. This is one very important move I think that people have made. And I just want to point out that this is only the starting point for really understanding how to move away from an anthropocentric model of the social world. Because even these kinds of models, even the practices models, still think about the social world as being built out of our engagements, out of, out of, out of our activities. They still divide the world or parcel the world up in terms of people and our interactions with the world, yeah. right? And so there's a kind of anthropocentrism. One of the, the reactions that I often get from anthropologists and people like that is, oh, we knew this all along. We knew that the individualism in economics is a big mistake, and we've already gotten past that. And there's a sense in which they're right. They are moving past that. But even so, it's extremely hard to really break away from at least a partial anthropocentric picture of the social world. But that's not the way the social world is built. The way that we build the social world is that we, um, is, is that, that social facts, facts about, say, an insurance policy. One thing you might think about is, let's say that you have a policy on your house, right? So you've written this policy. It's a kind of product of human uh, agreements, right? You agree with your insurance company, and you write these terms and conditions. And then there are these facts, like your insurance company owes you $10,000 because something happened. Right? Well, what are those terms and conditions? What do those depend on? Or what you might ask is, we have a fact about the liability of the insurance company. And what, is, what are the building blocks of that fact? Right. Right? Now, that kind of fact is extremely central to our social world. Facts about liabilities, facts about debt, facts about money, these kinds of things are, are really uh, elemental parts of how we've built up our complex social world. Mm -hmm. And so we have to think about those things seriously, right? So you take a fact like the bank owes you $10,000, and you think about, well, what's the ontology of that fact? What does that depend on? And then you look around in the world, and that might depend on nothing human at all. Right. It might depend on a forest in Virginia, or it might depend on a house out in the um, you know, uh, Turks and Caicos, or it might depend on 
you know, something happening on another, you know, r remotely that you have no knowledge of. Right? The ontology of the facts about a contract are really whatever you stipulate them to be. Do you see what I'm saying? So, so the point is that the building blocks of that kind of thing, of a bond, of a liability, of a contract, of a university, of a corporation, these kinds of things, what they're built out of doesn't have to be human-centric at all. Right. It could be dog-centric. It could be airplane-centric. Or it could, be, it could not have uh, any kind of simple building blocks at all. And presumably, um, and I'm pushing you, uh, I mean, it's hard enough to understand the social world, but presumably at some level in the far distant future, you could imagine at least in principle, you've got that all worked out. Um, you've got the natural world all worked out. And then you can look at some way of how these things actually explicitly interact. I mean, just in principle. So I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm assuming that, that uh, so maybe I'm wrong. So, but this is, this, is, this is my perhaps overly meta-reductionistic worldview, right? So let's suppose somebody else comes along in 200 years, right? And they, and they figure out, okay, we know, what, we know everything about the laws of nature. Or the, we, we know things at a fundamental level. And, and you've got your uh, social ontology all completely worked. You've got a framework where you think that works. Because these things, even though they may not be human-centric, it's hard for me to understand how they might be completely independent from the physical world. They might be dog-centric, as you say, or airplane-centric or something. But you'd think that there'd be some kind of interest. you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. I do. Um, I, I think that I want to be very cautious about this. Sure. Thing. Well, this um, is and there's too speculative. Well, right? Yeah. I mean, there, there, there are a couple of reasons. One of them is I think that the, there's, a, there's a branch of philosophy and science that's very keen to do what's called naturalizing the social. That is, to try to take social properties uh, or mental properties or things like that and then to explain them in terms of basic physics or somehow naturalistic terms. They think that that's really the project of, uh, of understanding the social world. Okay. But that's and not I what I'm think saying. It's not, and, well. I'm I, saying later. I'm saying once you've got your, your sorry. This, maybe. This is it, it, could, it could be, but I. I in principle but, later. Yeah, but, but one of the things that I think is, is important, and, and this actually gets us to what you asked before about this grounding and anchoring right, right. distinction. Um, one of the things that I think we really need to take seriously is the idea that we construct the social world in a kind of iterative way. And so I, I've introduced this term anchoring, which you can sort of understand as constructing social categories. So when we anchor something, we might anchor a law. So we, what we're really doing is we're setting up the conditions for something to be a social object of some kind or to have a social property of some kind. So I gave the example of, a, of an insurance contract. Right. So we anchor the conditions for the bank to have a liability. Right. Right? If, if now, that this isn't happens, the, then, then if the this, bank Exactly, is it's a kind of conditional. Right. It's if, if such and such is the case, then the bank has such and such a liability. Right. Right? So we have a conditional has these two parts. It has the antecedent conditions, and then it has what gets constructed. Right. And so that conditional is basically giving what it takes for the bank to have that liability. What we do in anchoring is set up these conditionals. Right. And that is a, a, a process of, that kind of accrues over the history of humankind. What we're really doing is we're building up new social properties, new social categories, one on top of another. We're using existing social categories to build new social categories and those to build new social categories until we have very sophisticated things like corporations and universities and bonds and money.
right? So if we are trying to understand the nature of the social world, there are two very different kinds of inquiry. One of them is to understand the content of these conditionals, to understand, well, what does it take in order for somebody to have so much money in a bank account? What does it take in order for, for a bank to have a liability? What does it take for this corporation to exist? All of these things um, are uh, basically trying to understand what, what social facts are built out of what parts. Right. And then there's an entirely separate inquiry, which is an inquiry into category construction. That's the inquiry into anchoring. You can do the first one without even doing the second one. You can try to understand, well, if you're trying to, do, to build models of how bonds work or how corporations work or how an economy works, you don't need to worry so much about why we set these things up the way we did. You just take it for granted that, that they're set up the way right. that they are. Right. And then, you, um, and then you try to model the social things in terms of the building blocks. We set up what I call a frame. Right. We, or we anchor a frame. Right. And that frame basically talks about how social things are grounded, what the basis is for social facts to be the case. So in our frame, what we've done is we, 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 can take, we take it for granted, as you said. We take it for granted that these things are built in a given way. Now, of course, we also have the power to change the way things are going to get built. We can anchor things and re-anchor them and re-anchor them. But once we've anchored things in a particular way, if we want to model the social world, we just take that frame for granted. And then we model how the social world uh, is built and also how it causally affects other, other things in the world. So when you're asking about connecting it with the natural world, there are really two very different sorts of inquiries. There are some sorts of natural world connections when you're just understanding, let's take the social world to be anchored the way it is for us. Then what are the connections with the natural world? Then there's an entirely separate inquiry into, well, historically, we have built up these layers and layers and layers of sediment that our social world is built out of. Right? That's the basis of our social categories. Right. And so if you're going to have a complete explanation of how the social set, world. How we set up these frames to begin with. That's right, we have to understand those. And, and so, so part of that, part of the goal of the book is to really separate those two inquiries. It's to think about category setup and then about category application. That's sort of how you might understand grounding is really the inquiry into how we apply the categories we've set up. Anchoring is an inquiry into how we set up the categories. And when you do these inquiries, both of them turn out to have a whole lot less to do with individual people than you might think. We don't set up the categories only by humans and human thoughts and human actions. That also involves a lot of non-human stuff. And then the building blocks of the social world are not individualistic either. So what do we do if we realize this? Um, how do we go forwards from here? If I'm if I'm an enlightened, open-minded economist, mm -hmm. oxymoronic though that might seem, um, there are there are some of them. There are lots of them. Yeah, who <laughs> uh, <laughs> want to? I, I, whatever. Don't don't get me started on this whole diatribe. But the whole idea that irrational behavior is this great new discovery, forgetting about the bigger picture and all that, um, that's just not very smart. I mean, I mean, any any anybody who's actually looked at humans over a long period of time 
should have made that conclusion an awful long time. And in fact, they did. And, and I mean, one of the things that's interesting is that people who started rational choice theory were very aware of human irrationality. What they, what they thought was that the human irrationalities would sort of, were on a kind of normal distribution and they'd cancel each other out. And so the work really is that people have done in recent years is to say, no, it's not actually a normal distribution. People are systematically biased in certain ways. Um, now that's a nice observation, but I agree with you. It's not going to fundamentally rewrite the nature of economics or solve the problems. But so your question is, how do we, where do we go from here? Right. What does the economist do? So I, I think that the first thing to realize is that, that we're in early days and uh, and so to have a little bit of patience and really to try to solve ontological problems on their own terms, to try to, to just have people recognize that we don't understand the social world very well and that we really need to take seriously the questions of how, how it's built, what these building blocks are. This is something that people just don't do. Yeah. Right? And so we don't worry for a moment about, about the models. I mean, imagine if you were studying DNA and somebody was like, well, you know, Watson, Crick, Franklin, you know, don't bother uh, spending all this time trying to figure out what, what the structure is. Give me a quick and dirty guess about what the structure is and then tell me how it works. They'd be like, y you know, just hold your horses. Let's spend some time and just for whatever, even if it's just intellectual interest, let's figure out what the structure is, right? Yeah. And let's, let's do serious work in trying to unpack the structure of the social world. And to do that, let's use the most contemporary tools. One of the things that I try to do in the book is at least to introduce some of the new tools of metaphysics to people that might not be aware of them. To introduce things like, like grounding, introduce some new tools like anchoring that people haven't yet used, tools like supervenience, the relations between things at different levels. Try to explain these tools so that we can then start approaching the social world with a sophisticated tool set, as opposed to with a kind of crude 1950s toolkit. So I get that, and I'm, I'm impressed by that way of thinking. Maybe, maybe it comes from my own particular biases. But here's my source of confusion. Let me pick up your, your, uh, your example. So, Maybe you're just being super tolerant, and maybe you're just a very nice guy, and you don't want to offend anybody. Not. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know. But um, you said something related to this earlier when you said, you know, those economists who were building their models on irrational behavior, and that's all very trendy these days, and they're building all sorts of models, and they're doing things. Well, that's a good thing to be doing, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing to be doing, and they're going forwards, and they're building that. But I'm thinking, hang on. If, if the idea is really that we don't have an appropriate and clear understanding of this social ontology, we don't really know what this stuff is, we're not looking at it in the right way, mm -hmm. then couldn't it be argued that it's kind of a waste of time to be, to, be, to be doing that? And to take your analogy, let's suppose we have people that say, you know, there are people that don't think that, that, that DNA is actually a double helix, that think that DNA is, I don't know, a circular rubber band or something like that. Well, it's okay that they think it's a circular rubber band, and that's kind of interesting, and they should be doing what they're doing. And as a, as a molecular biologist, I would say, actually, they're wasting their time <laughs> because they don't understand the structure. <laughs> and so, yeah, yeah. I, so I, I think that there is a danger to that. 
Um, I think that, I mean, first of all, I think that in economics, but in probably every academic field, the way people work is like little kids on a soccer field. You know, they all, they see the ball going in a certain way and they all chase that ball. Yeah. And then it goes a different way and they all chase it in that other direction. Uh, there are intellectual fads and sure. I completely agree with you that, the w that that is a ludicrous thing for people to be doing. For everybody to think that there's one panacea and even this, um, I think the jury is out. Even if we got the ontology correct, how much better would the social sciences be? Well, social science is really, really hard. There are lots of problems with social science. The data is terrible. People are very complicated. The social world is very complicated. There's, there's a, lot of, a lot of reasons why the social sciences are always going to be very difficult. And so I wouldn't put this forward as a kind of panacea for, for social science. Uh, I also think that there are other kinds of projects. You, you can't, one thing that you wouldn't do in, in science is say, you know what, let's not do any solid state physics unless we understand the very basics of quantum, of quantum mechanics. Right? You just don't, that, that would sure. be a mistake. You don't want to answer, this is what I was saying before, that there's a back and forth. Right. The, the answers to the what is it questions are informed by the answers to the how does it work questions. If and you're sufficiently attuned to it. I mean, well, if, you're, sure. if you're looking for that. Absolutely, absolutely. And so I, I think that, so, so on the one hand, I, I think that I would be very reluctant to say that, you know, there, there are lots of smart people who are working on lots of different kinds of topics for different kinds of reasons. And some things work. Yeah. You know, if, if what you're trying to do, for instance, is to try to understand how to get people to enroll in 401k programs, then it's a good idea to recognize that people don't always make rational choices and then nudge them in the direction of uh, you know, having opt-out rather than opt-in kinds of choices, that's a very good thing to do. So I, so I wouldn't say that, that they're all making horrible mistakes and that it's a big waste of time. I do think, though, that you should only have a couple kids chasing that particular soccer ball and that the rest of them should be put in zones on the field. And one of the very important zones, I think, that's completely ignored is coming up with better answers to the nature of the social world. So I, so, so I, I really, I, I'm, not, I'm not just being nice. I honestly think that, uh, that, there, that people have to allocate their efforts in a, in a variety of ways. But I also think that, to use another overused metaphor, um, I think there's a lot of people who are looking, on, looking for their keys under the street light and not looking at the rest of the parking lot just because there's something that they're aware of. And we need to, we need to you know, open ourselves up to all these other possible models. Right. Pe people are building models based on, uh, on assumptions that are probably wrong. And what that means is they have a hugely, they have a great understanding of, of a very small subset of possible models, but there's an enormous range of other models that we haven't even begun to explore. So, I see there are all sorts of differences in kind. Um, so help me out here, or tell me if this is right. So there is the idea um, that uh, we have to have a deeper appreciation um, of the distinction in and of itself between these social things, what's actually out there, and then the models that um, that describe how they interact and how they're put together. Yep. So there, um, 
there's the fact that we have to make that distinction, getting back to what we said before, whether the planets go in circular orbits or whether they go in elliptical orbit. We have to be aware of the fact that, hey, actually, we've been uh, making this one assumption as to what the, the, the constituent parts of the social world really are, and we have to be aware of the fact that that may be wrong. That's right. And, and so one of the things that some of the people who might be watching this um, might... Uh, wait, wait, laugh. Everybody's going to be watching this. Everybody's going to be watching this. <laughs> so some of the people who are going to be watching this um, might be interested in computer models of the social world. I think that, that this is something, it's, it's inevitable that uh, with all the data out there, with all the computer power out there, that we're going to be building uh, some very powerful simulations in the coming years. Uh, and, uh, and there's a standard way of building simulations of the social world. It's called agent-based agent modeling. And basically what they do is they take a bunch of people as agents and they put them in an environment and they have them go off and interact with one another. Yeah. Um, now there, there are various ways of doing this. Um, some of them are they um, some of them involve modeling cells, some of them involve modeling, uh, you know, modeling people uh, in sort of strategic interactions with one another. But this is a very standard way of building these models. Right. And what I want to point out to the people who are interested in, in doing this, who want to model the social world, is that that assumes, that, that is basically built on a kind of assumption about what the social world is. Right. So you're coding right into the basic building blocks of your model an ontological assumption, an assumption about how things are built. And a very important ontological assumption, I mean, which is to say, I think, uh, that if the social world isn't actually built that way, if, if that assumption is wrong, that there's more to the social world than just these individuals and their interactions, then you ain't ever going to get there by a model that, that has that as a fundamental assumption. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. It's, it's almost as though, um, you know, as though you were modeling the body by only modeling the soft tissue and not modeling the hard tissue, right? You're just not going to have a good model. Your simulation this is one of the points that I do make in, this, in the TED Talk, that if you have a perfect simulation of half of the human body, then your simulation of the human body is going to be terrible. Right? So you really need to think about how the social world is built right from the beginning in terms of, uh, of, of trying to construct new sorts of models, especially now, now that we're at the advent or the inception of this entirely new way of doing social science. I'm a little bit concerned that there's going to be a, a, a real movement to institutionalize building models in the wrong way. So, so there's this idea of the awareness of these, the distinction between these things, yep. the ontology and the, and the models that are built based upon that ontology and so yep. forth. Yep. And then there's the question of, well, okay, Brian, we, we get that, yep. um, but we think your ontology is wrong. We, we, we think that your particular approach to, to the ontology, what the fundamental building blocks are, and, um, or, or at least the method to be able to attain such an ontology is wrong. Are you getting that? I'm looking for different reactions from different people. Are some people saying, yeah, we understand that. Yeah, thanks for that, because we, we were making this assumption. We didn't realize we were making it. But you, you suggest that to be able to explore this ontology, you go this way, and, and we think you should go that way. Yeah, I don't get a whole lot of that. I get, I mean, I think most people just don't get to the point where they take it really seriously. Where they, where they, I don't think, I don't think most people really, um, 
Most people think that they know, that they know the answers already. Right? They made that assumption. Yeah, or else, or else they say, oh yeah, well, we already made that advance. You know, we, uh, you're, talk, you're, you're addressing somebody who, uh, who's working with a 1950s ontology, and now we have, this is why, why I raised this thing about theories of practice. Right, right? and the dance and you the know, cultural anthropologists. Exactly, exactly. You have people who are saying, no, 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 we're doing, we're not, psych we don't have a psychologistic ontology now, we have a practice-based ontology. And that takes care of it. And that takes care of it. Or they say, no, we don't have a practice-based ontology, we have an object-oriented ontology, right? And, you know, I think there are, there's a lot of work, a lot of very basic work to be done in, in trying to explore what the correct ontology is. Uh, really what I'm trying to do here is to set out some intellectual foundations, some basic frameworks and toolkits for people to, uh, to start investigating the ontology in a serious way. Um, and I have different problems with different approaches. Some of the approaches I think are just too vague to actually implement in science. And I don't think we have to stay at a vague level. We can do serious, hardcore, analytic work on what are the building blocks of social facts without having to just talk about, talk in vague terms. This is in a lot of ways what's gone wrong in things like theory of practices and object-oriented ontology. You just don't know what the hell to do with it. Yeah. There's something right about it. There's something wrong about it. It's all just so complicated and mushy. It's useless for a modeler, right? And so the modelers end up falling back on what they know, right? And that's a real, a reasonable thing. They want to build models, sure. right? And all I want to suggest is let's take some serious analytic frameworks and start with modest problems. Start with what is a bond? Start with what is the Supreme Court? If you're going to model the Supreme Court or if you're going to model a legislature, then those, are, those actually turn out to be on the easier side of things. Uh, because their building blocks, while more complicated than people think, are not all that complicated. And so there, let's try to do some of those things. Have, kind of pick some low-hanging fruit, model the ontology at least somewhat better, and then build better models based on that. So let's get a little bit more specific. Supposing I'm a modeler in the social sciences, uh -huh. and I say, okay, um, okay, Brian, you've convinced me. I have, to have, I have to rethink some of my assumptions to my models. Yep. Uh, I want to go out and build models. Yep. What do I do? Because I don't want to take 17 courses in metaphysics. Yep. So how do I do that in a coherent, progressive way, um, being able to incorporate what it is that you're saying? Do I, do, I, do I build collaborations with philosophers who are expert in metaphysics? What do I do concretely and practically to advance that? That's an excellent question. Um, I, and I, I think that um, there's not a wonderful answer to that question yet because I think that the problem is only now starting to get recognized. I think that, that uh, the field of social ontology is all of a sudden getting prominence in philosophy, but even so, the, um, the work is, is, just, is just beginning. So the applications of it are going to be hard. It's going to be kind of stop and start over the next few years. So uh, one thing that I think there's lots of room to do is for people who are willing to do the serious intellectual work of understanding the metaphysics, really trying to construct simple frameworks uh, that then will be applicable. Uh, I think there's a tremendous amount of foundation laying work uh, to be done there. So there's not a great infrastructure of tools. Uh, you know, there's, not, there's not a shelf of tools that the social scientist can then pick off yet. 
But we don't need to solve these problems perfectly, and we don't need to solve, and, and, and once we start making improvements on them, we can start building that toolkit. So for instance, um, I've done a little bit of work on, uh, on corruption, on, on understanding how to model corruption, and uh, to try to understand the, uh, it sounds funny, but to, to understand the ontology of corruption, to understand what is it when, what is a bureaucracy if a bureaucracy is going to uh, is going to engage in corrupt behavior, right? what does that exactly amount to? Because it isn't only the, the bureaucrats acting, it also is the people who are choosing the bureaucrats, it's the people the bureaucrats are interacting with. Corruption is one of these things that you can't really regard as something, even if you ascribe it to a group like a bureaucracy, it isn't something that that bureaucracy could even accomplish on its own. Right. You see how it sort of, it, it, to use a technical term, it ontologically depends on something broader than the bureaucrats. Similarly to the way that the, the judgments of the Supreme Court ontologically depend on things other than those nine people. Right. So there, there are some countries that are more disposed and less disposed, and how does that actually work? And right, so part of it is psychology, but part of it is, is lots of other kinds of, the structural of, of things. Aspects, exactly, yeah. exactly. So uh, that turns out to be a little bit of a complicated case, but not a super complicated case. So one of the things you can do is, if you're trying to model corruption, the very first step is to try to uh, come up with a better understanding of the ontology of, uh, of bureaucratic corruption. Understand what these facts depend on. And only once you've done that, and th that might be something that you could take a week or a month to do, uh, and then once you've done that, then you can incorporate that understanding in your models. So what is that, just, just, just since, we're, since you brought it up? Can you give, give me some examples of the ontology of corruption? Well, so um, one of the things that's, um, that's interesting about it is that, uh, so there have been different models of corruption over the years. Uh, the first models, the first really interesting economic models of corruption uh, were models that Gary Becker did um, who's a, a Nobel Prize winning economist, where he thought about crime and about the incentives for crime. So what he was really trying to do was to give a rational choice model for why a given, well of course, to give why an for why an individual bureaucrat might choose to, to take a bribe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and basically it turned out that it was obviously rational in certain ways for people to take bribes, especially if they're not gonna get punished. And so then he ended up building a model where he tried to, to model the incentives, you know, how you could build in incentives so that you would prevent people from being corrupt, from making those choices, basically to make corruption an irrational decision. So again, now you're what, getting these individuals, again, there's nothing systemic. About that's exactly right. So, so on, on his picture, the way that a corrupt bureaucracy is built is it is basically a lot of individual corrupt bureaucrats. Okay. Then there are other models that are hierarchical models where what they do is they say, um, actually, you have multiple layers in a bureaucracy. And if you want to understand why a given agent might choose to be, to be corrupt, that's going to be affected by that agent's bosses and that agent's bosses' bosses and so on. Right? So there you're understanding corruption in a slightly more structural way, but still as an emergent property of the aggregate of bureaucrats. Right. Do you the see how of individual choices is just more complicated how those choices that's exactly right get done. that's exactly right and so you can see now how you have two different individualistic ontologies that are built into prominent models of bureaucratic corruption okay now 
Um, there's an, a more recent set of models that's kind of interesting. Um, and this is by, um, there's an, an economist at MIT um, who um, uh, named uh, Ajamolu, I think is his name, um, who, uh, who's a great economist. Um, and he, um, uh, so he has a model where he thinks about the market for bureaucrats. So he thinks about the population as a whole. And then thinks about, well, what would the choices be that induce people to become bureaucrats? And so he, he's thinking about the bureaucracy as the, the choices of a, of a bureaucracy as part of the rational choices of members of the population as a whole. So if you want to model a corrupt bureaucracy on his model, you actually have to model equilibrium characteristics of an entire population, yeah. not just of the bureaucracy. Right. Right? So he's pushing the, it back even further. He's pushing it back further. But even so, he still is only thinking about kind of the interactions between bureaucrats and the populace, and it's kind of the fluid boundaries between the bureaucrats and the populace. One of the things that I think is interesting is that a lot of the time, the choices of the bureaucracy don't depend on the bureaucrats at all. A lot of the time, it's the people who are then authorizing them to be bureaucrats. Yeah. So you might think about like an oligarchy. And an oligarchy might appoint certain kinds of people to be bureaucrats. I mean, think about our political system, for instance, where we have a very powerful oligarchy. Right? And that oligarchy is essentially picking our political leaders. Mm -hmm. If you want to understand the decisions of our political leaders, it's a really bad idea to look at the political leaders. You want to understand the oligarchs. Right. Even though the oligarchs are not the ones who are who are making those choices. So the corruption of the bureaucracy in our system largely depends on the fact that bureaucratic choices ontologically depend on the fact that this guy is a bureaucrat. And that ontologically depends on, and causally, but largely ontologically depends on the authorizer's decisions. You see, so the corruption of the bureaucracy if you're going to try to model it, you have to first understand, well, what do these decisions both ontologically and causally depend on? And when you start actually investigating that, you realize that all of these models where you model bureaucrats or you model the choices of people to become bureaucrats or all the rest are going to leave out people who are not even connected yeah. to the bureaucrats. So, so this, this makes me think, think maybe this is a, a huge diversion, but... As I warned you, that's what happens. This makes me think of, of something that I've thought of and many other people have thought of, which is what are the conditions that produce the sorts of people, the sociological conditions that produce the sorts of people in office anyway? So tell me if I'm way off, but this is, listening to you, this is what I think. So we live in a modern liberal democracy, or so people like to pretend. Uh, whatever that means. And what it means is that we have these, these things that come from time to time called elections and so forth. And the structure of our society is such that the people who wind up in the governing classes um, are aware of this and, and they make the, the system necessarily, almost inevitably, weeds things out so that the people who wind up going into politics are of a certain disposition. That's right. So, um, so it, it doesn't really, this, this man on the street view or woman on the street view, or person on the street view, well, you know, these guys are all the same. 
Well, they, they actually kind of are all the same. And the reason why they are all the same is that the structural aspects of the system are such that they are uh, fairly convincingly guaranteeing that they're going to be the same because they are of a certain distance. Do you see what I'm saying? I, I, that's so, absolutely right. And, and I think that, um, I mean, one of the things that I, that I would uh, just caution about is when you say the structural aspects of the system, that sounds so mystical, right? But it, it isn't particular. It, it's, it, there are decision procedures that are built in to kind of the way that elections work that then determine sort of who the eligible candidates are going to be. Right. And so you're, you're absolutely right that um, it's, it's a big mistake. I think a lot of people in political science are trying to model the incentives and influences on legislators. And this is exactly the point that I'm making here. The, the corruption case is the sort of case that can get applied quite broadly to, to our elections. Right? Um, one of the things that... Um, that's uh, one of the, the kind of core models of understanding how electoral systems work is called an electoral control model. And the question is, why is it that legislators do what the, what the electorate wants at all? So why is it that, that a legislator would, uh, would make decisions that don't just benefit the legislator, but that instead benefit the constituents? Because, I mean, maybe they don't always, but sometimes, they're, they seem to want to cater to the, to the desires of their constituents. And the reason, of course, is that if they don't, then they're going to get kicked out on the next sure. election cycle. That's wedded to their right. self-interest. That's right. So, so this is, again, a rational choice explanation. And what they're trying to do is to explain why it's rational for a legislator to do something that might depart from the legislator's own interests. Um, this is part of a problem in, uh, of a a general class of problems in economics called principal-agent problems. Why is it that an agent acts on behalf of the principal rather than the agent him or herself? See, that sounds mystical to me, but anyway. Okay. <laughs> well, maybe they do, maybe they, maybe they never do. But the problem with, with this whole model, with the whole way of thinking about this, is that you're thinking that the principal's, I'm sorry, that the agent's decisions, that the legislator's decisions are influenced by incentives. Right? And that's not what we observe. What we observe is that people come into office and they act the same way over and over and over and over and over again. And that nothing that you do is ever going to change it. And it's not just because they're idiots. It's because that's their character. We pick people particularly so that they are, Im so that they are they're, uh, impermeable. <laughs> that they're, that they're, or I'm, I'm sorry, impervious. So that they are, we, we pick people so that they are impervious to external influence, right? Who picks people who are impervious to external influence? Well, it's the people who want the decisions to come out in a particular way, right? And so if you want to try to model how legislators behave, it's absurd to think about their, it's not absurd, but it turns out to be not, not particularly helpful to think about the incentives that influence them. What's really, help, what's really more helpful is to think about the process that ends up picking people with that character. Right. So you could imagine, just as a thought experiment, supposing people became legislators by a random process. Supposing it was like jury duty yep. and that, and, and that um, you would wind up becoming a legislator just because, of, because your lottery number had come up. Yep. Well, that would presumably have all sorts of different consequences because the structure would be completely different than the way it is now. That's right. In a lot of ways, I think that, that you could set up a system that was extremely responsive to, to the electorate 
what you could do is you could have an initial selection of random people, right? And then you could have them paid very well, so they want to stay in office, because you want them to be responsive, right? And you could have frequent elections. And in those elections, people could then throw them out if they weren't behaving according to the, to the preferences of the electorate. Then people would have real choices, because you'd start with a diverse pool. Exactly. Right? You might have some way of continuing to have the pool being diverse. I mean, look, this is never going to happen. But this is a way, it's a, it's a simplistic way of designing a political system. But, but the idea is, uh, you know, we've now, I mean, we've, we've to some extent narrowed the gene pool so that we have a kind of uniform class of people. And, then and we, that's built into the way that, uh, that candidate selection works. And, and then once you've done that, there's not much point in exploring the subtle details of the differences between of the gene, people in the gene pool because they're all pretty well the same because of the structure that you have to begin with. That's right. And they're also not particularly malleable right. once they're in office. Right. So, so, so this is something that, um, this, is, this is obviously not something that's entirely news to people in political science, but um, I guess that the point that I want to connect, I, I'd like to connect it back to social ontology because uh, I actually discussed this, this very kind of topic uh, towards the end of the book because I think that that it's a very nice example for how just a fairly, some fairly simple improvements to our ontology of the political can help us model things that we might have overlooked or that we might think as peripheral. Right? So if you really understand that the vote of a legislature depends on two different facts. It depends on what the legislators do, and it also depends on the fact that this guy is a legislator. right? <laughs> And then if you understand, well, what is it in virtue of which that this guy is a legislator, right? And then you do the ontology of that fact. It's not that complicated to do that, but it means that then you're going to model these two things equally. You're not going to spend all your time modeling what, how these people are behaving. You're also going to spend a lot of time modeling the building blocks of these people being the officials in the first place. And that, that, that vastly expands the space of models. It means you'll be modeling things that you didn't even think to model before. So maybe I'm just a particularly pliable individual, but that seems uh, both reasonable and practical to the extent that people don't have to take these aforementioned 17 courses in metaphysics or whatever it is to actually do. You can start asking these questions. What has the response been? Has it been... Um, just broad brush. Is, is there a difference between different fields? Do people in political science say, oh, yeah, yeah, you've got a point there. We hadn't really, or we've been sort of doing that, but we hadn't really appreciated that. Uh, is there a hierarchy in terms of receptivity? Just roughly, economists think one thing, sociologists think another thing. How, what, what has the response been in general? That's a really interesting question because I think this is something I haven't thought, thought explicitly about, but as I think about it in real time, there has actually been a vastly different kind of reaction by people in different sorts of fields. Uh, I got a really hostile reaction by a psychologist at one point who thought that I was just dismissing all the good work that every social scientist has done and that this is ludicrous to think that philosophy had anything to contribute to, uh, to social sciences. This was a, this is a psychologist, a but social you, you psychologist. Can, but you, presumably you can appreciate why that might happen because, because that's, I can imagine that it would be considered quite threatening to a psychologist. I mean, if your view is 
we have to understand the human psyche and and once we understand the human psyche then naturally all these other things are derivative of that and you're saying actually <laughs> they necessarily so um then you, i mean it's you i guess see that, right I, I, yeah yeah i guess i guess i was i was i was still pretty surprised but how hostile was it was it like oh it was knives uh, and guns hostile or was it? oh it was uh um it was it was this this harvard very well-known harvard psychologist who uh who yeah, well, exactly. Who, uh, who, uh, who just wrote a, a really, I mean, like a like a, a very dismissive and and kind of nasty response. Um, but in general, in the psychological um, so that, or, or in general in the in the other different social science communities. So, um, so again, it differs from field to field. I think that uh, in in economics, uh, I, the reaction that I've received is that. People are not interested in ontology. In, in ontology, they don't really. Everybody says, "Oh, economists don't really think about about the deep issues," and everybody I talk to say, "Oh, well, I'm working on this. I don't. We don't I don't really think about these these sorts of issues." So these are what um, economists say, or these are what other people say about economists. That's what economists and that's what economists and people who even people who work in the methodology of economics, even the the people in sort of the philosophy of economics, don't really know what to do with it. And in some ways, I'm kind of sympathetic to this because. If you're interested in practical issues, then you need to have some sense of how this is going to affect your practice. Sure, um, they have to do but, day -to -day but you're, not, you're not diminishing the importance of practical issues. You're, no, you're no. getting back to your zero out of 10 thing, right? And you're saying, hey, let's yeah, do better. Let's do two, right, yeah. two out of 10. <laughs> two out of 10 is good, right. Um, in, uh, in, I already mentioned what sort of the people in anthropology tend to say. They're like, oh yeah, 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 we already knew this. Right. You know, um, and, uh, and so they don't really uh, pay a lot of atten attention to uh, so far. I mean, again, this is it's, it's early days, um, but there is a kind of gut instinct that it's like, oh yeah, we, we already knew that that individualism was wrong. Um, but part of the problem there, I think, is that there is the style of the of this work that I've done so far, at least, is very kind of analytical. It's it's really it's analytical philosophy, and that's very different from the sort of stuff that that a lot of people um, in that field are working on. Um, but I think that there's that there's promise. I think there's a lot of openness to new models, and I think there's also a recognition that uh, current models haven't been particularly productive, and so so there I have a certain amount of optimism. Uh, in um, so one of the, the areas that I've received a lot of interest in, kind of which in retrospect is not that surprising, uh, is people who are working in management. Uh, so people in business schools uh, realize that they really don't understand the kinds of objects that they're talking about. And they're always looking for new kinds of frameworks. Uh, and one of the things that I think is, is actually quite interesting is that if you look at models, like if you look at the actual models that people use, you go into an economics department and the models are very idealized and very individualistic. But if you go into a into a business operation, and they're trying to model a company, it's actually, their models are actually a lot better. Hmm. They're a lot more heterogeneous. You know, if you, if you go to some company to, you know, a factory or something, and you look at their spreadsheet, and you look at the various categories that they're using to tabulate how things get done in their spreadsheet, you'll find that there is no systematicity. It's just a whole range of different kinds of building blocks. You see, and so, because they, they have to do that. Yeah, they maybe have to. it's because they don't come from an academic environment as much. I mean, they don't have this 
curse of the academic to systematize things or to make things idealized or take test particles or what have you. Exactly, exactly. So there's a lot of quick and dirtiness in business models that makes them ontologically more sound huh. than the models that you find typically in economics. And those are the people who, uh, who are just crazy excited, you know, uh, who, who really want some help in terms of how to think about, um, you know, to think about uh, corporations and institutions and entrepreneurship and stuff like that. Um, so that's kind of an interesting, an interesting turn that I, I really didn't anticipate. And listening to you, I'm thinking, is there a better job that we could or should be doing in terms of education? So just, again, this idea of, without even using the word ontology, just this idea of, or, or maybe using it, but what have you, this, this sense of when someone is an undergraduate and they're taking economics courses or, or they're taking business courses or they're, or they're taking sociology courses or what have you, um, that in the teaching of the social sciences, uh, or maybe even at high school, I, I, I don't know what the right level is, but it is, could we be doing a better job at even clarifying what these assumptions are that we're making and, and driving people to a situation where they would be more receptive in principle to these distinctions and, and understand how to, at the very least, make better models. Yeah. I mean, I think this physics, right? right. I mean, you, there was a, there's a clear sense of, okay, this is what we have to do, guys. We have to understand what, what's actually out there, and then we have to understand how to build our models. Right. Right. I think that in... Uh, so, so, yes, I think there are a number of things that can be done. Uh, to some extent, I think that people in social sciences and in economics in particular are already to some extent recognizing this. They, they're realizing that the kinds of people who are getting turned out have a certain kind of uh, technical expertise but lack of insight uh, that requires that something be done. I don't think that people know exactly what to do, but I think that, um, but I think that people realize that there's something that's gone dramatically wrong. There's a reason that uh, that economics in particular is really just not making the kind of progress it needs to be making. Uh, there's a kind of lack of, of breadth or theoretical insight or um, maybe a kind of, of, um, of uh, you know, the, uh, conformity uh, that, that, peop that I think people uh, are trained to, to, to become, or trained to do that, that uh, is really a problem. So, so I think, I think that, that people are, are recognizing that this is a problem, that there's, there, there's not enough kind of iconoclasm inside of economics departments. Now, what to do about it? Uh, you know, one of the sad things is that there is a tremendous amount of pressure to uh, become more career-centric, to try to develop more and more practical skills, uh, and uh, and to de-emphasize broad liberal arts thinking. Um, so I think that that the decline of the humanities is a bad thing. Um, it's not um, it's not surprising that a person coming from philosophy has a big affinity for the humanities. But I know from my personal development, you know, I started in physics, but there is no way that I could have made progress on thinking about the nature of the social world without having an enormous amount of exposure. And some of that was blind alleys. I spent a lot of time studying Husserl, and I only got a slight amount out of that. You know, I, I probably spent more time on that than I should have. Um, but, but, but those blind alleys are important. And there's a kind of intellectual curiosity that I think the humanities 
uh, and a broad exposure to philosophy and other fields really helps cultivate, uh, which would be really, really useful. Um, now, that's such a big systematic prescription that you might be asking for something more specific. Um, but I think that, that merely engaging people on foundational issues from the beginning, letting people know that this is not the same thing as studying calculus. You know, if, if you're, um, I mean, there, there are lots of areas of mathematics and physics that are unknown and that where people are just finding their way in the dark. There are other areas that are very well established. And when you're in school, you tend to learn about the well-established areas, and you basically are learning facts. But that's not the way economics is. Economics really has to be taught more as something that is a, a kind of young science in its infancy, where there are lots of ways of doing things, and people, people have to learn various techniques, but they also have to understand that their theoretical weaknesses, even in the most basic of those techniques. It seems to me your appeal to the importance of the humanities is somewhat different than a standard appeal. My sense is that you are saying the standard things. The standard things are that it is to the benefit of society to have broad-minded, cultured, cultivated individuals who can think in different ways, lateral thinking, et cetera, et cetera. That's the, that's the sort of standard appeal, and it's, it is broadly to our own best interest because you never know what directions we're going to go and so forth and so on. But it seems to me that at least when it comes to philosophy and philosophical training, you're saying in addition to that, there are some um, accomplishments. There is a sense of specific progress in a particular field which can be directly applied to enhance these fields. If economists were to have learned about some of the things that uh, have happened in social metaphysics over the past 10 years, they would actually be better economists. Oh, absolutely. Um, and they would be able to take that information and apply it to build better models. And so it seems like uh, in that way, I think your appeal seems uh, both, if I could, maybe this isn't appropriate, but I think your appeal uh, is both idealistic and practical at the same time. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, I think that there are lots of, lots of reasons, plenty of non-instrumental reasons for thinking that, that the humanities are important as well. Um, and I don't know, I mean, maybe having a meaningful life is also instrumental, right? But here I'm talking about very practical things. I mean, one of the things that you might ask to, to use kind of contemporary business jargon is, you know, what's, what's the source of the next disruption in economics? Clearly we need, we need disruptions in the social sciences. Because if we're going on the same trajectory that we're on right now, then um, you know, we're just not going to be making a lot of progress. Now, a lot of people think that the next disruption is big data. That the one, the, it was very interesting. I, I mentioned this, uh, social, these social science meetings I went to in Boston, and everybody was talking about behavioral economics. But there was a, that is about the irrational, um, irrationalities in economic behavior. Uh, and... Uh, but, but all of the, the people in those conferences were just deflated. There was no energy in the room. Uh, it was, they'd been doing this for years and years and years. Uh, I just thought, thought it, was, it, it was a very unexciting intellectual environment. And then there was one small room where the people were overflowing. You couldn't get in. And that was the people who were talking about big data and applying big data to economics. It was, it was crazy. 
how, how much interest there was. Not, that's, that's, that's an interesting phenomenon, and I think that that's the next soccer ball that people are going to be chasing right. after. But, um, but fundamentally, that's still about trying to discern statistical patterns in, in data. That's, you know, and and that's, that sort of thing is, you know, now that we're collecting a lot of social data, we, we right. may actually be making some real progress. Right? But, um, but the question is, where are the next real disruptions going to be? Right? And I, I think that, it, that it's, it's hard to know, but if you're going to have people who are capable of disrupting the foundations of a field, the disruptions are always disruptions to the foundations of the field. And if you're going to have people who are capable of doing that, then you need people who are really engaging in those foundations. I'm wondering also about the role of societal education. So here's what I'm thinking. Uh, you pointed out, many other people have pointed out, the fact you mentioned Paul Krugman had famously pointed out that um, the economic crisis that started in 2008 was, let's be charitable and say, very poorly foreseen by the economics community and and there was a sense of failure. Yeah. Um, and so that's accepted and understood, I think, in academic circles. And yet, if you look sociologically, the same people that were the pundits and, and the prognosticators and, and the talking heads and the public intellectuals and whatever words you want to throw that were doing their thing in 2006 and 2007 are by and large still out there in 2015. Um, and so if we have a system which doesn't really punish people for being wrong, I mean really wrong, zero out of ten wrong, or whatever, wrong yeah. on as big a scale as you can possibly imagine, presumably that diminishes the incentives for people to really look seriously at their field. They may feel deflated, but on the other hand, they might think, well, I got a job. <laughs> I've been zero out of 20 in my career. <laughs> actually do things. I'm still, you know, I'm tenured and I'm doing my thing and I'm coming out with my papers. And so it seems to me there's a, there's a little bit of, in addition to the academic side, I think there's a little bit of keeping people's feet to the fire and, and having some social understanding of this that has to be going on simultaneously. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I have a, a few different thoughts about this. I think, um, I mean, one thing is that, that uh, in the absence of anything better, people, are gonna, people want somebody who sounds authoritative for good reason. You want to know. You know, if something's going wrong, you want to have, have people who are giving you some sort of diagnosis. Yeah, if they know what um, they're doing. I well, mean, look at their track record. Sure. But, <laughs> um, but, I mean, you know, like with the latest, you know, I mean, markets markets crash all the time and yeah. uh, and there's there's lots of so th there, there are structural problems uh, a lot of the people who uh, who just sound best on TV or who sound most confident we know very well are not the smartest people or not the people who are who who necessarily have the best opinions one of the things another thought that I had is one of the things that I find, find a little bit sad actually is that Krugman has sort of changed his tune a little bit about um, about the role of economics in the crisis because when the, when the crisis happened, he came out with, this, with an article um, asking, how, does macro, how did, did macroeconomics get it so wrong? So basically an article trying to diagnose the problems with, uh, with economics. Um, and now in the last several years, he's really gone back and said, you know what, the Keynesians have been right. And so there's this kind of polarization mm. where he's saying, oh, well, you know, we really do understand what's happened in the aftermath. But the there's a Keynesian... 
And the bad guys weren't listening. The Keynesian diagnosis is correct. It's basically simple Econ 101 from a Keynesian perspective. And all we need to really do is that. And that, I think, is a much more passive. And th there's some truth to it. I mean, there's, there actually are, I, I think, some of the prescriptions that haven't been followed are prescriptions we knew should be followed. So we should have had more stimulus. And that sort of stuff is true. But the fact remains that macroeconomics is still crap. And it, that hasn't improved since, you know, since 2008. And so to say, oh, well, we were right all along, I think in a lot of ways sends the wrong message. Uh, I think that the, the true message is that we need to fix, uh, to fix economics if possible or recognize that it needs to be fixed. Um, now, I, I'm a little more optimistic uh, because I think that the way that you overcome a... Uh, the, the, way, the way that scientific change occurs is that the old generation dies and you have a new generation, right? And so, uh, so I, I think that, that uh, you can't really worry too much about the fact that there's a bunch of people who are doing the same thing they've always been doing. That's the way the world works. Uh, what you really need to do is innovate and come up with something better, and that ends up supplanting it. Um, I mean, I'm not, I, I'm not that optimistic. I think a lot of the time you have better things that drop away. Sure. Um, but I think that, that, uh, that the real answer is to be constructive, um, to try to build new sorts of models. Recognize, for instance, that, the, that computer modeling is going to be an enormous uh, uh, new, new approach to thinking about social science. You know, of course, it's going to use, use data as well, but a lot of it is also just going to be the power of simulation fairly quickly is going to start overtaking the analytical models that we've been using in the past. Uh, and uh, that's something that's already hit in a lot of physics, for instance. I mean, you would never do a simulation of a nuclear bomb by using equations on a piece of paper. You do it by running supercomputers. And with weather simulations, it's the same kind of thing. Uh, in economics, that really hasn't happened yet. Um, people are still in economics departments mostly doing uh, equations on paper. And the, the kinds of simulation stuff that's been happening has been really, really weak. Uh, now, uh, that's, that's bound to change. And one of the things that I think would be useful is if as it changes, as it develops, if we could simultaneously migrate those techniques to, to take some of the foundational issues more seriously as well. Uh, last question yeah. about how the philosophy community is responding. So we've talked about other communities, other, other areas. Mm -hmm. What's the reaction you're getting from your philosophical colleagues? Is this, hooray, uh, here's a, a standard flag bearer going out into the real world, as it were, and showing the value and the importance of metaphysics? Or is this, oh my god, he's tarnishing our field by selling his hands with all these guys out there? Or wh you know, what, what's I, it like? It's an interesting question. I actually think there's been a real turn in philosophy just in the last 10 years or so. I think people are really starting to realize that, um, that philosophically important questions also need to engage with the world. Um, part of it is that certain sorts of disciplines have become so technical, um, like certain parts of philosophy of language are super, super, super technical, and they've become so sterile that it's not clear why anybody even does them anymore. Um, but, uh, but philosophers, I think, are starting to kind of get a sense for more social responsibility um, especially in analytic philosophy. There's a tremendous amount of interesting work being done in uh, gender theory and race theory, 
um, but that also that's that's now moving into the core of analytic philosophy. So analytic philosophers are becoming much more aware of these sorts of issues. And one of the things that's also become clear is that people who are doing straight metaphysics need to think more broadly about the kinds of questions they're asking. And those are people in metaphysics are, are realizing that as well. People who've been interested in um, the existence of numbers or, the, or, or um, people who are interested in the ontology of tables or you know, of elementary particles or things like that, they've, they've started to realize that the, that the set of questions or the set of examples that they're using is just too narrow. And that if they're going to do good metaphysics, then they need to expand into the kind of more variegated social world. So actually, the, the receptivity has been kind of unbelievable. People across the spectrum, uh, people who are in pure metaphysics, people who are in social theory, they're all kind of starting to recognize that, uh, that there are questions that are both central to philosophical inquiry and that also have applications in the real world. Um, so, so I think that, that this represents a shift that um, th there's just a tremendous amount of interest uh, in, in a variety of different fields. And it's, it's a shift, I think, in the whole nature of the way people are thinking about doing philosophy these days. Interesting. Yeah. Anything I didn't ask? Anything that, uh, that we, we've overlooked? Or um, no, I mean, we didn't talk that much about anchoring or whatever, but, right. I, but I, I think it's... Um, we I can think, talk I think a little more did. if you want. If there's something, no, I, think, I mean, I wanted to get to the the basic. Uh, yeah, I basic think we're good. I think that we did a, that. That uh, we probably did about as good a job as as we can do at this point. So. Well, it was a pleasure so, talking. Yeah, you too. Thanks very much, Brian. Thank you. Thanks. This was great. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook. And as part of the ebook and paperback, Conversations About Philosophy, Volume 2, along with separate discussions with Honora O'Neill, Susan James, Hassana Sharp, and Susan Wolfe. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com. For those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in, are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.